welcome to the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast. I'm Karen Wright-Marsh. Do you wonder if Christian faith can be truly lived in today's complex and changing world? Well, this is the place to find broken and beautiful companions for your everyday pilgrimage. Here, you'll find embodied witnesses, Christians from different eras and from different cultures, They're people we sometimes call saints, but they were also sinners, just like you and me. Today, I'm here to tell you the story of Julian of Norwich, and to talk about her with the writer and scholar, Danielle McRae. I'm glad you're here with us. One of my favorite stories comes from the 14th century, 650 years ago. It's about the first woman who wrote in vernacular English. But we're not sure when she was born or when she died. In fact, we don't even know her real name. She was called by the name of the church where she lived, St. Julian, in the English city of Norwich. In the 14th century, most people who lived a religious life a spiritual life dedicated to God, would withdraw into monastic communities. But Julian of Norwich, as we call her, was different. She chose to be an anchoress. And in this way, she was a a common lay parishioner who lived right next to the church in a little cell built right against the building. And she vowed to remain forever in that place, in her little space, no matter what. The life of an anchoress is an odd way to live, especially for us now, but it had a certain brilliance to it. She could devote herself to prayer and contemplation and yet still remain connected to the society around her. Her cell had three windows. The first window opened into the church. She could hear worship. She could receive communion from the priest. The second window opened into her garden. And the third window of Julian's enclosure faced out onto the turbulent Norwich streets. So though she was neither a nun nor a common lay person, she was a woman on the margins. She was still fully engaged in the life of the church and the city. She was in that safe, interesting space between sacred and secular society. Now people visited Julian at her open window And think about it. They knew she was there. She had promised that she would never leave. So they would come to her, this woman of prayer. They would seek her for counseling, for spiritual insight. And you know, they told her all their troubles. And they had many troubles because 14th century England was a harrowing time. The sounds, the sights, the smells of death were everywhere. During Julian's life, the plague, the Black Death, swept through the town three times and killed more than half the people in Norwich. Bad weather and sicknesses came and struck down livestock and crops, driving desperate peasants to revolt. From her cell, Julian heard all kinds of terrifying news. 
She heard about assassinations, about the Hundred Years' War, about the church in moral collapse. She heard about heretics burned at the stake. The people all around her saw these horrific events as evidence of God's wrath. And you would think that it was an unusual time to proclaim the boundless goodness and love of God. But this is what Julian did. An incredibly strange thing had happened to Julian. It happened on the afternoon of May 13, 1373, where she witnessed a series of vivid mystical visions of Christ on the cross. She saw red-hot blood, his crucified body, his dehydrated face. She saw the innocent Son of God tormented on the cross. But not all of Julian's visions are gory. Some are quite tender. God reveals a tiny object. It's as small as a hazelnut. It's round as a ball. It's something you could hold in the palm of your hand. And Julian hears God say this. This is everything that has been made. This is all of creation. It lasts and it will always last because I love it. She knows that everything is kept, sustained, and alive by God's tender love. Julian shows us a God who is no wrathful avenger, but whose goodness is closer to us than our very bodies. For the visitors who came to Julian's window and told her their troubles and heard her visions, there was no sugarcoating of all the suffering that they endured and all the fear that they felt. Because Julian never stopped questioning and wrestling. She was a theologian, puzzling with a paradox. She had two opposing beliefs and realities. She saw that sin exists. She knew that there was evil in the world. And yet she held too to God's love. She believed that the world is created and sustained by an absolute, absolutely invincible love, that there is a God who does not condemn and who will not harm. So she wrestled with this idea of sin and love, and when she saw the evil in the world, she asked God in her vision, why? Why is there this evil? And God said, what is impossible to thee is not impossible to me. And so God's impossible way remains known only to God, and Julian goes on. But we see her holding to God's love to the end of her life. There's a quote of Julian's that is very well known, and it goes like this. All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. But it's so much more than a cheery platitude, because both then and now, Julian sees both our pain and our hope, and she holds to a larger story. She tells us that the story of God is not over, that it's not complete, but that it is a good story and all shall be well because the love of God is eternal and overcoming and we will not be undone by the alarming events of the day. Indeed, all shall be well. The Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast is the audio companion to my book, Vintage Saints and Sinners, 25 Christians Who Transformed My Faith. To learn more, come on by my website, karenwrightmarsh.com. Please rate and review this podcast on iTunes and invite your friends to join us. 
now for a conversation about Julian of Norwich with my friend, Danielle McRae. I'm very happy to welcome Danielle McRae to speak with me today. She's the author of The Censored Pulpit, Julian of Norwich as Preacher. Danielle is an assistant professor of homiletics at Yale Divinity School, and she focuses on preaching, on Christian spirituality. She has studied African-American women preachers, including the life and witness of Reverend Paulie Murray. Thank you for speaking with me today, Danielle. Thank you for having me, Karen. So you wrote your dissertation on Julian of Norwich. Your new book is about Julian of Norwich. Why did you choose her? Well, I was really, at the time, I, w- I wanted to study a preacher who, who operated on, on a fringe. And I really wanted to study a preacher who, who was really coming to voice while homiletics as a discipline was being formed. Um, you know, so there was Augustine's on Christian teaching that had come out long before, but it was really, it's really during the um, medieval era that we get more, that we get homiletics texts. Well, tell us about her daily life as an anchoress. It's such a, a such an odd way to live. And how did she fit into society and yeah. the church? Tell us about that. Yeah, so she was really sort of in the center of it and on the on the fringe of it. There were some anchorites who actually had anchor holds that were not attached to churches, but Julian's was attached to a church. This would mean that she she was um, in the center of town. The typical anchor hold was one with a window out to the street so that people could come to the anchoress and seek prayers and advice and wisdom, and one window that opened to um, the sanctuary so the um, anchoress could participate in the Mass. The role um, left someone with a kind of Janus-like position, right, where there's this duality um, where one is holding on to what's happening in the temporal and in the eternal world. So her day would consist of prayers, a great deal of silence, some conversation with people who, you know, had spiritual questions, and a great deal of writing. She spent decades working on revelations of divine love. And after she had the visions at age 30 and a half, she spent a great deal of time afterwards just mining them, pouring over them, trying to, you know, draw out the spiritual insight that emerged from them. Because she was convinced that the message was for the church, that it that her visions were not for her own benefit alone, but that there was this larger edifying purpose that the messages were supposed to serve. And so her role was to understand them, to interpret them as best she could, Mm -hmm. and to make them known. Now, she was also quite very aware that because of the nature of the visions, there were some things that she could only share in in a partial way that they don't break down in a, in a crystal clear way because they're spiritually discerned. Now, I say that also holding on to the fact that I think Julian was clearly a theologian. I don't, she was not, you know, trying to be obscure, but 
I think at the same time, she realized, you know, there are cognitive limits when it comes to understanding divine things. And she wanted to hold on to that. Well, I want to talk about the whole idea of a vision because, you know, maybe at the time, did people accept this experience of mysticism, of vision? And how do you think if she were living today and she announced this vision, how she might be received. I just feel like Mm -hmm. we just see the world and we see spiritual realm in such different ways now that the thought of someone having a vision, I think most people, I don't know, would respond with skepticism, if not alarm. Well, you know, I think there's this long history of um, seers, mystics, prophets being challenged with skepticism. And I I think ultimately, when it comes to matters of faith, these are matters of belief and they can't be proven. Um, It requires that we move into a different realm of assessment. So I would expect that she would be met with um, skepticism about the visions. But, you know, there are even people, there are people in the contemporary scene who have what I would consider prophetic messages who are met with skepticism, even there, the, I think of um, Greta Thornburg, right? You know, this young, I would mm-hmm. say, prophet, right, about our need to respond to the environment and care for the earth. And I think she's met with a great deal of skepticism, too. So I think, you know, the sense of what a vision is varies over time. Clearly, Julian's was of a different kind, that emerged during her her illness. And I think some people can um, take it in and others can't. And that's just something that I think Julian would accept. And, you know, the energy goes less to, um, to changing minds and more to helping people engage, you know, those who, those who are responsive. Um, And that's what I think Julian does so well is that um, she is a really compelling writer and Mm. um, is able to bring things to life, make ideas vivid. You know, her humility is evident. It's it's clear that she's not trying to become the star, right? She's not (laughs) not trying to put herself on a pedestal with this, um, which I think is one major counter argument to the skepticism, but, you know, to think Mm -hmm. about the motives of the person bearing the message, but she's really trying to offer insight and comfort and empowerment in a moment where those things are direly needed. And what is her message of consolation? What does she end up, what's at the heart of her message? We are loved beyond our knowing. We're, we're held in ways that we can't fathom we're loved by God as as children and never grow out of childhood, as far as God is concerned. And we're secured by God's love. We're not able to cognitively wrap our minds around that of that divine security. And we do experience fragility, right? Mortality, um, suffering in this world. But there is there is a security that we have in God's love that should guide our thinking and our prayers and our interactions. 
Mm-hmm. Her vision of love, her actual visions and her understanding of love are things that emerge out of darkness. So both a metaphorical darkness and a literal darkness. You know, when she's giving the visions, you know, she's painting the scene for us and it's a vision of darkness. There's this many waves of suffering that are flowing through the world at that time in terms of the violence and the banditry and the war and the plague. And, and so the light, the message of love emerges out of that um, sense of instability and fragility and chaos. So love is something that that is alive, that is not that is not muted by or not compromised by the amount of suffering around it. Mm. There's been so much written about Julian and so much attention to her. She's she's so popular. She's a thing. You know what it is. What is it about this moment? that brings Julian to the fore like this? You know, she speaks to the moment in her, in her attention to our need to feel loved. You know, her message of security that's not a, a thin vision. You know, that, that is part of her vocation is that of consoler. And that's her gift for the moment. I think we're in need of consolation, a consolation that's not a thin, it'll get better now, now there, but a deeper yes. kind of, there's a realm of activity that we can only partially perceive, but we're being held by something, even though it seems like we're being overwhelmed or even though it seems like we're being submerged in something that will topple us all, we're being held by a divine power. She's able to communicate that message of being held in a powerful way, being enveloped, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Being enveloped and kept in a powerful way. Yeah. We do need that. Her voice saying, you know, all shall be well. It's so hard to believe that. And yet that's what she says. Right. And she doesn't mean it as kind of a, a cheap optimism, right? It's all is not well, but all shall be well. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. She's not going to sugarcoat it at right. all. Right. Right. Uh, well, thank you for bringing us, Julian, today, the great consoler and her good word to us um, in this fearful moment. Thank you, Danielle. Thank you, Karen. Julian of Norwich lived in the ancient past, and yet I feel like she sees straight into my heart today with its fears and questions. Through my conversation with Danielle, I feel like I know Julian better too, as a woman who suffered and yet emerged with a comforting message of God's love, as a preacher who declares God's protecting closeness even when catastrophe is all around. Today, as Danielle says, we all need consolation. We all need to hear Julian's words again and again. As she says, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. Thank you for joining me today. 
I'm Karen Wright Marsh, and I'm the Executive Director of Theological Horizons, a ministry based in Charlottesville at the University of Virginia. I'd love to hear from you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Theological Horizons. Come by my website, KarenWrightMarsh.com. You'll find out more about the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast, get show notes, and learn about my book, Vintage Saints and Sinners. You can download free printable study guides for your small group or just for yourself and keep the conversation going. Thanks to the generosity of the Lloyd and Vivian Noble Foundation and to the Friends of Theological Horizons. I hope you'll support the Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast with a tax-deductible gift to Theological Horizons. Go to theologicalhorizons.org slash giving or donate on Venmo at theological-horizons. The Vintage Saints and Sinners podcast is produced by Gabriel Hunter Chang. Our music is by Will Marsh of Gold Connections.